boy. Oh boy. Oh boy, Jason. Oh, Jason. Oh, Jason. I'm going blind. I'm going blind, Jason. Oh boy. Karasaki. Good afternoon, I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sea urchins, chemical traps, and teeth whiteners. Also joining us is Professor Robert Harris to talk about the ambidextrous universe. In addition, you can find out why are bananas good for you. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week here on Berkeley Grocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Um, well, you know, first of all, I just want to say happy belated Valentine's, <laughs> Well, all right. Happy belated Valentine's to all uh, those people out there as well. <laughs> <laughs> all those lovers out there who are sort of uh, uh, recovering from uh, lovers, uh, <laughs> lovers hangover, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> Too much chocolate. <laughs> so, do you have any aphrodisiacs this year? Uh, well, no. I just sort of uh, quietly drunk myself into a stupor in in the bar. <laughs> oh, you didn't try the panda meat. I, I haven't tried the panda meat. Is that supposed to be a, a big uh, aphrodisiac? It tastes like babies, but <laughs> but what what's really uh, uh, aphrodisiac is uh, sea urchins. Sea urchins. Some people regard it as an aphrodisiac. Okay. I hear ginseng is as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the essence, right? Right. Saltpeter, though, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out uh, sea urchins have some very um, interesting um, immune properties that they've just discovered. Okay. Quite interesting since they seem to be able to ward off a lot of pathogens uh, in the same way that antibodies in uh, vertebrates can do. So what they've done, um, uh, Courtney Smith at George Washington University was investigating how these uh, sea urchins would react to uh, bacteria. And they found that um, when they were exposed, they produced a certain set of proteins quite similar in their structure, in their sequence, but um, subtle enough that they showed high diversity. And then she wanted to investigate what the gene mechanisms were. Oh, okay. And so then she uh, wound up uh, looking at how these things were produced? Uh, found out what, how, um, how the genes turn on when they were exposed to uh, bacteria or bacterial right. uh, pathogens. This shows high diversity in terms of what um, the genetics of uh, invertebrates can do, which uh, hasn't been observed before. Right. I think most people essentially look at uh, what's called the adaptive immune response, right? Right. Uh, but I don't think uh, the surgeons have that. It's just sort of like the primary immune response that humans have, essentially when you first get cut, right? Yeah. That The uh, initial response from these sort of nonspecific cells. But uh, I guess this is a sort of a surprising finding in terms of uh, evolutionary uh, Biology. Okay, excellent. So uh, what does that mean for aphrodisiacs? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) 
More sea urchins? Yeah, well, hopefully you'll have a, a healthier Valentine's Day. Ah, yes. They are low cholesterol, I heard. <laughs> then they'd even taste good with chocolate, but, you know, what doesn't? <laughs> so anyways, uh, if anyone's interested, this is in a recent edition of Physiological Genomics. I read it all the time. All right, well, if you're uh, not too busy eating seizures uh, over the Valentine's Day, perhaps you uh, stop to uh, take a smoke of the wacky weed. The wacky weed? Yes. Is that just like the crabgrass growing on my lawn? <laughs> well, you could try smoking that. I'm not sure what kind of effect it would have. Uh, well, you know, I've tried to burn some grass before. It smells really nasty, actually, <laughs> like burnt rubber. Uh, maybe that's because of the tire that was laying on the grass. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, so, uh, you know, it's well known that marijuana, when you smoke it, sort of increases your appetite uh, for, you know, various munchy type things, right? Yeah, it can uh, help anorexics. Huh? I, I suppose it could, actually. Uh, but apparently it uh, seems to be tied with another uh, hormone called leptin. Oh, leptin. Right. So leptin, of course, is a, seems to be a massive regulator for uh, appetite in right. the brain. And uh, it's known that the cannabinoids, endogenous cannabinoids in the uh-huh. brain and leptin were sort of linked, but it wasn't really clear how. Okay. And so a group of researchers led by Young Huan Zhou at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine uh, basically took slices of brain tissue, mice brain tissue, and looked at a part of the brain that's involved in this regulation called the hypothalamus. Okay. And what they did is they basically spritzed on some of these cannabinoids, marijuana, uh-huh. or leptin, uh-huh. and to see what the effects were. And it turns out that leptin, the regulator hormone, apparently opens all these channels causing calcium to flow in. Right. But the cannabinoids essentially stop that. It just blocks the channel. Okay. So it's thought that uh, uh, people who uh, don't have sort of a large amount of endogenous cannabinoids, perhaps, Uh they're not able to block this leptin signal, so they overeat. Oh, so you think they'll have like a cannabinoid uh, mouth spray one of these days to uh, suppress (laughs) your appetite? (laughs) Well, you could spray it, you can smoke it, you can (laughs) snort it. I don't know if people snort it, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, it, it does suggest uh, a potential cure and another use for the medical marijuana. <laughs> in any case, if anyone is interested in this, uh, they can take a look. It was published in the recent edition of Neuron. So, Charles, did you whiten your teeth for Valentine's? <laughs> for that extra sexy smile? <laughs> Uh, well, if I had any teeth, I guess, yeah, that might be useful, but no. <laughs> <laughs> so it it turns out it may not actually, it may not actually a good, be a good idea to uh, whiten your teeth or bleach it excessively. Oh, uh, probably because it's going to break down the calcium or the uh, the enamel? The industry actually uh, asserts that these whiteners or bleaches do not damage the teeth, but mm-hmm. a recent study um, carried out by Michelle Dickinson at Hisatron shows that uh, there seems to be some um, damage at the nanoscale. Oh, really? So if you look at teeth under a microscope, or probably something more sensitive than that, you can actually see, you know, ordered nanostructures which give teeth their strength when you um, when examine teeth that has been exposed to the uh, levels that, that are typically found in these whiteners or, you know, prescribed at the dentist's office. Mm-hmm. It looks like these structures have some sort of a damage. Hmm. And in fact, uh, if the regions which have been uh, constantly exposed, they seem to scrape off quite faster oh, wow. than they would with, you know, just a regular, your regular enamel. Okay, so they're much more flaky and prone to, uh, uh, I guess, damage. Right. But but the good news is uh, it's, you know, the same way that uh, orange juice or a cola damage your teeth. Uh, mm. If you don't use it for a while, your body has regenerative properties and it'll eventually heal. Mm-hmm. But um, 
in terms of the actual exposure, is actually weakening your teeth. Uh, well, okay. I guess good news. I, I wasn't using the whiteners before. <laughs> and uh, more reason for me not to bring, take it out. <laughs> and of course, I don't smile much nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> is the weather really that bad out there? <laughs> it's not so bad. <laughs> but it is winter. <laughs> so anyways, uh, this was an interesting finding, and it's reported in a recent edition of Chemical and Engineering News. All right, and finally, uh, did Valentine's Day for you involve uh, being held captive in a cage? Well, uh, if you put it that way, then every day is Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) You're in a cage of your own design? Uh, Of my mind. (laughs) It's the world that's been pulled over your eyes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, so you might expect that uh, to build a stronger cage would be better. But it turns out that in biology, sometimes building a weaker cage is better. Wow, the strength of weak connections. <laughs> uh, some people can find jobs that way. <laughs> I've heard. Uh, well, so it, it turns out that a number of biologically active molecules can be rendered inactive by essentially what's called caging them with another molecule. Okay. So, and then you can release the active molecule by shining a brief light on it or something, which will release the active compound into your biological mix. Okay, so I, I guess somehow the... Uh... The resonance frequency of the light somehow activates or inactivates certain bonds. Right, exactly. And so there's a photoreactive process where the bonds shift and change and then release whatever compound you need. Right. So the interesting thing about this is that uh, you sort of want uh, cages that are stable but can be released easily. Okay. And uh, a group led by Graham Ellis Davis of Drexel University in Philadelphia has synthesized a new compound called nitrodibenzofuran. Uh, which essentially is much, much easier to disintegrate with uh, brief flashes of light. And so it shows that there's a, a novel new compound for people who want to release biologically active molecules in their, uh, uh, in their little experimental setups. Uh-huh. This is, you know, all kinds of really cool little tricks that people can do. And uh, this particular uh, uh, thing was published in a recent edition of Nature Methods. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology. In a few moments... Professor Robert Harris joins us to talk about the ambidextrous universe. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Perfect Rocks. Well, symmetry or parity is often regarded as a beautiful feature not only in the arts and music, but also in the science and the natural world. Intuitively, we may believe that the physical properties of an object are conserved when its mirror image is taken. But at a more fundamental level, parity non-conservation may occur. Well, joining us today to talk about this very intriguing phenomena and ways of possibly detecting it is Professor Robert Harris here from the Department of Chemistry at UC Berkeley and also Gina from Physics. Welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. 
So first of all, I guess to preface the discussion, uh, what exactly is parity conservation and especially uh, molecular parity as it pertains to the problems that you're working on? Parity conservation is that if you have an object that in a mirror reproduces itself or changes sign when it's reproduced and you look at it at a later time, it will not change. Mm -hmm. That is parity conservation. Another way of saying it, or more, more complicated, is any object or an experiment that one can do, if it's isolated, the mirror experiment can be done. The mirror object can, in principle, be made, even if it isn't. So a mirror, if parity is conserved, a mirror you, a mirror Gina, a mirror me, may, in principle, be uh, made, even though it may be infinitely difficult to do it. That is parity conservation. It's much more general than tetravalent uh, carbon. And could you tell us a little bit about the paper that you two had written about parity non-conservation? Uh, parity non-conservation means that the mirror experiment cannot be made. In other words, the mirror image of any experiment does not exist in nature even though you can make it with additional fields, mm -hmm. but the pure mirror experiment does not, does not exist. And, it is ex and another way of putting it, going to the simple version, is that if you make an object which in a mirror reproduces itself or reproduces itself with a sign change, mm -hmm. then dynamically that object will not be stationary. It will change in time. That's parity non-conservation. But technically, when you have a mirror image of something, the, the physical property should be identical to that of the mirror image. Is that right or not? They, they, some properties are the same. Uh, others are ones that are different in sign for left and right. For example, the properties that Gina has worked on in her experiments, they are in principle different for left and right, but differ only by a sign if parity is conserved. In the context of the Ozma problem that was um, characterized by Martin Gardner, perhaps maybe just for the audience, could you explain um, how you framed this argument? The Ozma problem is the problem of long-standing, but not as the Ozma problem itself. There's a history to why the words were chosen, but the important point is it is the question of how w one can transmit the information of what is left and what is right to a, an alien civilization without actually transmitting systems that are distinguishable by left and right, which are called chiral. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, without parity non-conservation, you cannot. And we uh, frame the problem in terms of the actual behavior of, thing, of behavior on Oz because it gave a very good example as to this whole way of looking at it, namely, that Oz is supposedly just surrounded by a deadly desert, and we assume that this deadly desert could not transmit uh, information about left and right. And in Oz, the wizard puts the heart on the left side. And if the wizard is not from uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and Dorothy and Toto aren't there, we could assume that they could either put the, the uh, heart on the left or the right side of mm -hmm. the Tin Woodman. And our whole paper is showing how using some frequency generation, the technique that Gina has worked on, and, and how that can be overcome using with parity non-conservation. 
and in this paper, you use a Gedanken approach or a thought experiment. Uh, how difficult would it be to do this uh, empirically? Well, a Gedanken experiment is basically an experiment, I think. Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong. It's a physical experiment that is very difficult to do. But uh, theoretically, you can outline that uh, if we can do it, then what the result can tell us. Mm -hmm. So because the effect of parity non-conservation is going to be very, very small, and uh, experimentally, it might be difficult to observe. Although theoretically, you can, you can calculate it, how big it will be. The atomic experiments have been done. One can also use atomic optical activity, which is a direct consequence of parity non-conservation to solve these problems. But we chose to use some frequency generation because it's so beautiful and has these lovely interference, uh, quantum mechanical interference aspects to it. Mm -hmm. So that's really the, the nature of our work. We also, we did introduce a, uh, a second OSMA problem, which was uh, distinct from putting the heart on the left side, mm -hmm. namely how we could transmit or be transmitted to us whether amino acids are left or right. And, and the idea for this one uh, grew out of the possible experiments by uh, Allison Skelly of Rich Matthey's group in the chemistry department mm -hmm. making an apparatus to test for chirality, <clears throat> handedness on Mars. Mm -hmm. And since that uh, has been put off for a long time, we adopted it to Oz. So uh, Oz, my problem, basically uh, in the 1960s, there was a Ozma project, basically a scientist. Drake. Drake. He uh, tried to use a telescope to looking for uh, um, for uh, some intellectual life form in the universe. He named this project uh, Ozma Project because uh, Oz is a, a civilization that is away from Earth, and he would hope to, to find it through the telescope. And then uh, Martin Gardner frame this problem, Ozma problem, because uh, basically the, the, the central problem, if there is a civilization far away from Earth, and we can only communi communicate them from, with a very simple methods, mm -hmm. how can we tell them our definition of left or right? I so see. this is uh, the whole problem is about. Without, uh, if we, we have to tell them what is left and what is right mm -hmm. without sending them actually you know, an image of a of a um, chiral object and say, well, we define this as left. So, so another way to look at the problem is uh, if uh, people are knowing Wizard of Oz, the wizard has to put the heart into the chest of the Tin Woodman. Right. So that's at the end of the story, Tin Woodman finally uh, got his uh, wish realized. Mm -hmm. But uh, if the wizard is not from Earth, how would he know which side of the chest should he put the heart in? So he, he might put it on, in the left chest, chest, he might put it in the right chest. Okay. This, this uh, story seems to be uh, not that important except for the Tim Woodman. Maybe he doesn't care which side the, the heart would be. But uh, very fundamentally, this is a question of uh, how to define left and how to define right. Is there a way to do it unambiguously in the universe? So uh, Bob showed before that uh, you can actually do that using parity non-conservation because the universe actually does not treat left or right equally. They have a preference with, uh, with uh, one hand. So in, in a way, people would say that the universe is handed. And does this give us insight into why amino acids are of one hand, uh, the left hand, or uh, are these uh, not related phenomena? Well, it actually is related, um, because people have proposed that the 
fact that parity is not conserved mm-hmm. actually uh, gives a small preference, and calculations have shown, it's not certain how accurate they are, that the correct handedness of amino acids mm-hmm. that are found in nature are the ones that are preferred by parity non-conservations. But it's doubtful whether that is really the answer. But it is an answer in principle that didn't exist before experiments showed that parity non-conservation itself existed. So it's changed the whole view in a profound way, Hmm. even if it is not the answer. So what you're saying, basically, left-handed amino acid is more stable than right-handed one. That's right. Left-handed amino acids have lower free energies than the right-handed ones due to parity non-conservation, but it's very small difference. But I've also heard that cosmic rays, uh, which are polarized, uh, gave rise to uh, the difference in energy between the, the two hands, and that's why we have the left hand dominating. One the, of the reasons? There's a, there, are, there are a number of competing theories, but mm-hmm. no one has really done an experiment to show that there is some difference in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, to answer it, you'd have to conclusively, conclusively show, do an experiment where parity violations actually show this difference or cosmic rays or beta decay. My view is that there can be fluctuations, spontaneous fluctuations, and once they exist, they get carried. Um, the point is that <clears throat> that's, if, let's just talk about parity being conserved. Uh-huh. If parity is conserved, the natural uh, states of any molecule okay. are not handed. Okay. And they're, they are the reason why they're one-handed rather than another uh, is not fully understood even to this day. Part of it is that they're very that the, that the, the potential barrier between left and right is often very very high. Mm-hmm. So if one is prepared. It can't, quote-unquote, either go over the barrier or, in quantum mechanical terms, tunnel to the other side. This is one reason that handed uh, systems are stable. Another reason is that the environment causes fluctuations which stabilize handed uh, rather than ones that are not. But fundamental quantum mechanics says that the lowest state of any system is not a handed state at all, but is a, a state, like I described originally, that in the mirror will give back itself rather than its mirror image. That's a, a different issue from the, what we, we discussed in our, our, our work. Change subject a little bit. What are some of the more exciting developments happening uh, in your field these days? Um, you know, what, what are some of the uh, unanswered mysteries which are quite exciting? Well, so I'm, basic, I'm an experimentalist. So, uh, and uh, in my experiment, I use uh, one uh, process called uh, some frequency generation mm-hmm. to study all kinds of systems. So uh, this, uh, maybe I should describe what this is. Sure. So uh, some frequency generation is basically when you shine a two beam into a medium, say okay. anything, and then you will ex- expect that two beam will come out with the same frequency. So if you put a red beam and a, and a green beam into your system, you will get a red beam and a green beam out. Uh-huh. But if you have a very sensitive detector, uh-huh. you will find that you actually get a blue beam out as well. 
is that from Raman scattering or? Uh, this is so-called sound frequency generation. I see. Basically, you get a beam whose frequency is the sum of the two input beams. This is uh, just a general process. It happens all the time in the nature, but right. uh, because it's so weak, uh-huh. it's a very weak process. People, people's eye cannot detect it. Uh-huh. Um, but if you use a very strong laser, then you can actually see that this 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 effect can be very efficient in some material. But uh, this effect has this advantage that uh, uh, approximately uh, you know, on a certain level of approximation, it's not allowed in system with inversion symmetry. So in a sense, if your system like water, a, a, a cup of water, this whole system has inversion symmetry. Basically, uh, molecules pointing up will mm-hmm. have an equal number as molecules uh, pointing down. Then uh, this process is not allowed. Mm. So it cannot happen. Uh, as a result, uh, my advisor in physics department, Ran Shen, he actually developed this technique to study uh, surfaces. Because at surface, the inversion symmetry is always broken. When you do some frequency generation measurement, what, you, what you're probing is only the surface response. Okay. So people have been uh, using this technique uh, for the past uh, almost 20 years because obviously it's a very powerful technique. You don't need ultra-high vacuum. You don't need... Uh, um, very uh, flat surface. Mm-hmm. As long as your light can reach the surface, you can study it with this technique. Another way is we have been talking about chirality, and uh, you can realize that the chiral medium does not have inversion symmetry as well. If you invert it, then your molecule will change from, say, uh, left-handed to right-handed. Then it's not the same system anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, at year 2000, our group actually demonstrated that you can use some frequency generation to probe the chirality of the system. So if you can see uh, some frequency generation uh, under certain experimental condition, you know the system is chiral. I guess we are running a little bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or uh, the work that's being carried out? Well, we've worked together on a variety of things for... Almost five years. Yes. Isn't that correct? Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay. Thank you. Our pleasure. And in a few moments, Professor Harris and Gina return for the Grokotron 5000. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. And this week's Grokotron 5000 is the Wizard of Oz. Scarecrow, Tin Man, or Lion. Or if you want to take the opposite of what these guys didn't have, Heart, Courage, or Brains. And subject number one is Oprah Winfrey. Wow, this is a sensitive question. <laughs> but it's good that I don't know Oprah and probably I will never know her. So, Alright, subject number two, Star Wars character Yoda. Well, he doesn't seem to need any of them. He has everything already, right? Right. He'd have to go outside of Oz. If you take a mirror image of Yoda... You'd get a Yoda. And subject number three, the guy who started it all, Louis Pasteur, who first observed chirality. 
I think he he certainly has courage,、mm-hmm. he has brain, and I think he should have heart. I don't know enough about him, but he certainly had a lot of courage to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. do this. Right. And he certainly had enormous amount of brains. And in his favorite famous statement, "Chance favors the prepared mind," you could think he had a heart too.、Mm-hmm. So he would have all three. He would have all three afterwards. Ah,、uh, subject number four:、uh, scientists of a more contemporary nature, Stephen Hawking's. He would be like the Tin Woodman, because he ran off. Pardon the pun with his nurse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but you know, if you can fall in love with someone, you have to have a heart. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> he certainly he has courage. He has courage, courage. Certainly. He has great brains. Yes. Gina is right. He has all three. And finally, our very favorite, the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Needs brains. Needs a, certainly needs a heart, and in a real sense, needs courage. Right. That's my right. view. So the chicken. Well, there is the. There is a chicken in one of the Oz books, I think. Oh, there is. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, but the, I don't think it looks like George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> All right,、um, Professor Harris, Gina, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you. Our pleasure. It's fun. <laughs> And now it's Monkey Boy with the answer to last week's question of the week: How does banana give you strength back? Banana contains valuable potassium, and that's how banana. Replenishes my muscles and gives me my strength back. Thanks, thanks a lot, there, Monkey Boy. Yeah, this is a、uh, Jack Jack Twist, gay cowboy. Yeah, I've been wandering the wandering the Brokeback Mountain, herding sheep. Yeah, them sheep ain't gay, but their wool sure is. I wonder what's made out of. Well, if you know or or think you know, you can email us here at groks at hotmail dot com. I I reckon you won't win anything, but hey. You might just look good in that turtleneck, sweetie. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail dot com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling, and I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www dot grox dot net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>